into a journey story, wasn't it, from Kerry? Uh, my name is Pete, and uh, I'm uh, one of the pastors. I'm the lead pastor of our church. And again, let me add to John's welcome. If you're here, and especially if you've been invited along, whether you've been before, but particularly to think about this question for God, um, we're so glad you're here. And probably of all questions, this is the one that's going to be the most uh, personal, perhaps the most difficult. I wonder how you celebrated uh, New Year's Eve just a month and a half ago. For our dear friends, uh, Dan and Teresa and their three kids, Dan and Teresa is actually the uh, godparents of one of my kids. This is how they had New Year's Eve. I'm going to read out what they wrote. What a year it's been. In the midst of watching fireworks from a balcony window tonight, our kids express the ache of not being able to share it with their baby sister. This time of year is not only painful because Evie is no longer with us, it's also the time of year we first discovered her diagnosis. We had never even heard of Edwards syndrome before, but little did we know that these two words would come to define and shape most of 2018. Just a bit of background, Edwards syndrome is a chromosomal defect, also called trisomy 18. 50% of children with Edwards syndrome make it to birth, only 50%. And if they do make it after that, only 10% will live past their first birthday. Uh, And if they do, there's significant physical and other mental defects. The official term when someone is given the uh, diagnosis of Edwards syndrome, they say that the baby is incompatible with life. All right, that's the diagnosis. Let me keep reading. Evelyn Talitha Peiwang Lee was born alive on June the 8th, 2018, after a nerve-wracking pregnancy, labor and birth. From there, the brief 77 days we had with our beautiful daughter were sweet yet bitter, joyful yet stress-filled. We lived more days in hospital than at home, but she was alive Evie died on August 24, during a time when we thought she had become more stable. We'd started to look towards, hopefully, having more days with her. Since August 24, we've deeply ached each day as a family. Our bodies and minds are exhausted by grief, pain, and a year's worth of adrenaline draining out of our bodies. Since August 24, we've put sobbing children to sleep each night. Since August 24, we've had three family birthdays without Evie, a Father's Day, we've moved house, a Christmas, and now the dawn of a new year. A Christian author called John Stott wrote, The fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith and has been in every generation. We've had other questions in our series so far. How do we know God is real? What's the purpose of life next week? What happens after death? But this is the biggest challenge to people believing in Jesus. I shared with you Dan and Teresa's experience with baby Evie, but if you read the news, obviously there's a lot of suffering, isn't there? Just give you one example. It's not been in our news very much, but the UN calls this the greatest humanitarian crisis right now. It's 
the Yemen civil war. I don't know if you know there was a civil war since 2015. Right now, 20 million people are facing starvation. 20 million, almost the population of Australia. 85,000 children have died from malnutrition. 3 million refugees. That's just one place in the world right now. What about among our church family? Those from our church, our congregation, and the two other congregations, well, there are those who are battling cancer or have relatives who are. There are people with chronic physical and mental illness that they find almost unable to get out of bed every morning for. There are those who have suffered or are suffering from domestic violence, those who have survived sexual abuse. There are those who have lost children of different ages or parents or siblings have gone. There are those who are long-term unemployed and struggling just to make ends meet. There are those who are grieving from relationship breakups and breakdowns. There are those grieving from singleness, those grieving from infertility, those struggling with loneliness, and the list goes on. And we're only a church of a few hundred people. So today, I come at this question, and I don't want to be glib, and I don't want to make you feel like I have all the answers, because I don't. I want us to explore some of these things together, and hopefully by the end of it, we'll see at least one perspective from the Bible that I believe is what the world needs to hear today. But I'm going to deal with three sub-questions, really, today, and it's on the um, handouts you got when you came in. And the first one that we're going to deal with is really the logical question, okay? It's not, in the end, the question I want us to end with, the logical one, because suffering is much more than just logic, right? It hurts us at the deepest levels, but we're going to start there. So the first question is this, how could an all-powerful and all-loving God allow suffering? Now, for some, this logical question is why they don't believe in God, And it comes as this kind of logic. So there's two assumptions, a fact and a conclusion. Assumption one is, an all-powerful God could end all suffering. Yeah, I think we'd agree to that. Assumption two, an all-loving God would want to end all suffering. The fact, however, is that suffering exists. And so the conclusion drawn from that, and this is for some the big reason they don't believe in an all-powerful and loving God is, if suffering exists, then all, an all-powerful and an all-loving God does not exist. Now, if you're looking at that, you're thinking, okay, I think I know where I would go with that logic. Of course, we need to then question the assumptions, right? That's what you do with this kind of logic. But let me talk about, I think, the wrong answers or the wrong assumptions to question before we get to the right one. There are three wrong answers, and the first is to deny that God is all-loving, right? And some people would say that. that Some people say, look, love or even goodness aren't as essential to God as Him being assumption to all-powerful and all-in-control, right? All-powerful trumps all-loving and all-good. God is all-powerful. He can do what He wants. What He does, no matter what that is, is good. So who are you to question? Now, can I gently suggest that this is the direction that Islam leans when it comes to the question of why does Allah allow suffering and evil? 
At the end of the day, Allah is sovereign. He can do what He wants. Who are we to question? So in a sense, we're kind of saying God is not all-loving, at least not in the same way as He is all-powerful. Now, that's one answer, but it's not the Bible's answer to deny that God is all-loving. Because the Bible says He is all-loving and He is all-good. Now the second one, you can then go to the next assumption and say, well, obviously then God must not be all-powerful. And that's why He can't stop all suffering. Now there is one branch of Christian theology that says that's the case, and they would say even God can't control the future. The future is as open to Him as it is to us. He might be wiser, smarter, right? Like a master chess player, He can arrange all the pieces but he can't control the future. And therefore, he can't actually end all suffering. So, that is another way that people try and get by this you know, problem of the logic. Of, but unfortunately, that's also not the Bible's answer. right? Because the Bible gives a picture of God who is in control, even in calamity, even in disaster. When it's a result of human causes or natural disaster, the Bible says, no, God is still completely in control. So that's not a good option either. Now, the third option is probably what you might know as karma. Karma is, in a lot of Eastern uh, philosophy and religions, basically you do bad, it comes back to you. Right? You're, you're getting back what you sowed. And karma often in some religions is not just in this life, it's going to the next life. So if you live a bad life in this life, Next life, you're going to really suffer for it later on in the next reincarnation. So that's one way of trying to get over the hurdle, that people are suffering. The world is the way it is because in a former life, you're paying for your wrongs. Now that's again, a, may, maybe that's what you think, but as attractive as that might sound, unfortunately, if you really think about it, karma is a really unjust response to suffering, isn't it? especially when you get into the idea of karma coming back in reincarnation many lives, because it leads people to actually do nothing for the people who are suffering now. So if I see someone who's a poor beggar on the street, and I believe in multiple lives and karma, I actually shouldn't be helping them. I mean, I might want to build my karma up for the next life, but really, this poor beggar is probably there because in a past life, they'd done something really bad. I should just let them pay for their own suffering. Do you see what I mean? Karma is actually unsympathetic and unjust. Now, fortunately, there's also a Christian version of karma, and it is also wrong in the Bible's view. The Christian version goes like this. You might have heard it before, and maybe this is what you think or have been told. So the Christian version is when there are bad things happening, it's God's judgment, direct judgment. So an earthquake in Haiti in 2010, that's a pretty bad earthquake, tens of thousands of people die. Well, it's because Haiti is full of the occult and witchcraft, and God is punishing Haiti. Or Hurricane Katrina, Again, a few uh, years ago, that was punishment because of uh, the Mardi Gras, okay, in places like New Orleans and, and so on. So that's the Christian version of karma. Anything bad that happens to you, you got cancer, well, God is punishing you for something bad that you did. That's terrible, isn't it? Again, very unsympathetic, very uncompassionate, but it's also not what the Bible says. You know, when Jesus was faced with that kind of karma view of suffering, this is what he said. Let me show you a little interaction between Jesus and the people of his day. Now, there were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate, 
the governor at the time, the Roman governor, had mixed with their sacrifices. Pilate basically killed a lot of them. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Look what he says. I tell you no. Then verse 4 he says, All those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Jesus says, I tell you no. So whether it's human cause suffering or an accident, the tower falling down and crushing 18 people, Jesus says, don't think that because they died, they are worse than others. This is not karma. Right? The Bible doesn't allow us to give that as an answer either. So those three ways of coming at the assumptions God is not all loving, not all powerful, or some sort of karma, none of them are valid according to the Bible. So what is the Bible's answer? Well, the Bible's answer is this. Firstly, that the ultimate origin of suffering is sin. The ultimate origin of suffering is sin. Ultimate is the important word there. See, the Bible storyline is that God made it, but we broke it, all right? That God created a world actually without suffering, a world that humanity under Him could have ruled in a perfect, beautiful, complete way. But when human beings sinned, right, when we turned away from God, that's the word sin means, a rupture was formed in the good creation. So we read that earlier. Um, I'll put it up again, Romans 8, just one of the verses we read. Look what it says. It says that we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Right, though God is in control of suffering, the Bible says that the creation, He allows the creation and the order of creation and its perfection to be ruptured because of the way that we have turned against Him. And so the Bible, while it says that God is in control of suffering, does not make God the author of suffering. See, it's not right to say that God made the cancer grow or that God killed baby Evie. That's never the way that the Bible talks about it. The language the Bible uses is more that God allows It's different to God causing. Because again, the ultimate origin of suffering is the way that we've wrecked our relationship with God in the world. Sin. See, we live in a groaning and suffering world because we've turned away from our maker and our designer. And so, directly, we can see how that is. I mean, wars, murder, abuse, rape, injustice, caused by human sin. But the Bible also says from places like Romans 8, that natural disasters, sicknesses, that's just because we now live in a world that's broken. It's gone out of whack. That's ultimately also because we have turned away from God. So that's the first answer. The ultimate origin of suffering is sin. But the second one, and this coming back to the logic, is this. That an all-powerful and all-loving God has good reasons unknown to us for temporarily allowing suffering. Okay, it's going back to the logic, and I'll show you what I mean there. So assumption one is an all-powerful, and a, all, uh, all-powerful God could end all suffering. Assumption two, an all-loving God would want to end all suffering, and the Bible would say both one and two are still true. But it wants to add assumption three, and this is the important one. That an all-powerful and all-loving God has good reasons 
unknown to us for temporarily allowing suffering. Do you see, once you add assumption three and the fact that suffering exists, the conclusion is suddenly different, isn't it? For those of you who like logic, you might like this. For those who don't, don't worry about it. We'll come up to the other questions soon. Right? That suffering does not, therefore, disprove the existence of an all-powerful and all-loving God. Do you see what I mean? Assumption three is key. And that's really the direction the Bible's answer goes to. We don't know why. Hasn't been revealed to us, but there is a why that we will one day find out, just not now, of why God still allows some terrible things to happen. Now, you see that in one of the guys in the Bible who really suffered, in fact, he was betrayed by his brothers, left for dead, been sold into slavery, and at the end of his life, as he talks to his brothers, finally, and reconciles with them, even though they, they did all that to him, he says to them, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Do you see? He doesn't say, what you did was right, what they did was harmful, was evil, caused a lifetime of suffering for this guy, Joseph, but then he says, look, God was able to use it to accomplish what is good. For reasons that at the time was unknown to him, God allowed it to happen. You got that? Now, you might think, well, that just is a poor excuse. I'm suffering so much, God can't possibly have any reasons, and if I don't see any reason, then there must not be any reason. And that's how we often want to react when it comes to deep suffering, and we see it in the world. And I understand that sentiment, can I, but I, can I gently push back, though? Because if you don't allow that God might have reasons unknown to you to allow for suffering, and because you can't see any reasons, there are no reasons, then in some way, you have to set yourself above God, don't you? You have to be able to say, even though I am a finite human being and lots of things I don't understand, when it comes to God and His ways, I know more than God. Because if I can't see a reason, there must not be a reason. Do you see how that is sort of a difficult and a dangerous position to be in if you're a human being, limited like we are in so many ways? All right, so that's the first question. As I said, it's a logical one. For some of you, that's like really exciting. For others, it's like, next question. So let's go to the next question because now let's get a little bit more personal. How is God going to fix suffering? Because even if the logic works, it doesn't mean we want to accept the logic. So how is God going to fix suffering? Well, the first thing I want to say here is to affirm that the Bible is very clear that God hates suffering. It's not like He looks at suffering and evil, and even as He allows it, He's just casually saying, well, you know, I guess it'll just have to happen. I'll just let it run. I've got a greater purpose. They'll just have to grin and bear it. Okay? It's, it's not like that. He is not a masochist. God hates suffering because He is all-loving. And His heart bleeds for the way that we have ruined our world and ourselves. So don't think God stands and looks at the way we're hurting each other or the way that our world is fractured and He is just okay with that. God has feelings and He hates suffering. So you see that from a couple of... Um, this is a poem from the Old Testament Bible. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Do you see? He has compassion on us in so many ways, and especially when we're suffering. How about this one? The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. Because he hates suffering, 
the Bible says God will do something about it. And that leads me to the next thing I want to say. God hates suffering, but there is a time coming, there is a day coming where God will end it all, make all wrong things right, including suffering and evil, and work righteousness and justice. And He is so loving and He is so powerful that everything that was lost, He will restore. So I said that the Bible's storyline is God made it, we broke it. There's actually a third part, okay? God made it, we broke it, God will fix it. Right, that's the third part. And so I want to take you right to the end of the Bible and show you that this is what God has said He will do right at the end. And it's a beautiful picture, especially if you are suffering and you are grieving the suffering that is in the world. Look at the Bible's picture of the end. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, pictured as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. I heard someone say once, if God wanted to end your tears, he could just click his fingers, like Thanos, like click his fingers and your tears would disappear. But this says God will wipe your tears away. How personal and intimate that is. You see, God will fix it. But then the next question is, well, that sounds great. Why not fix it now? Now, why didn't he fix it before Evie died or Why didn't he fix it before the Yemen civil war started in 2015 or a whole host of things that have happened? Well, the Bible's answer is, yes, God will fix it. But you know, when God is going to fix it, he's going to fix it completely. He's not going to do a half-hearted job. Remember, the ultimate cause of suffering and evil is sin. That's what we said earlier on. That's the Bible's view. And so if God is going to get rid of not just the fruit, but the roots Yeah, you know what I mean by that? Not just the symptoms, but the cause. Then he will need to not just wipe out suffering and evil, which is the symptoms, but wipe out sin as well. All sin, the way we treated him and each other, all offenses to God and each other, all of that will be revealed, judged, dealt with completely if there is going to be a new world without any suffering. But do you see, that raises an immediate problem, doesn't it? And the answer to why hasn't God done it yet? Because the day that God does this, yes, suffering will be gone, evil will be gone, but so will... Well, what about the sin in my life and the sin in your life? What about the way that I've treated God and the way that I've treated each other? What about the times when I've been the cause of suffering and Do you see? That'll all be revealed. That'll all be judged. And if he's going to deal with the symptoms and the cause, the fruit and the roots, then every person who has sinned, which is everyone, who hasn't had their sins forgiven and dealt with and paid for, they're going to be part of the problem that swept away, not part of the... Do you see the problem now? And so the Bible says this is the reason why God hasn't yet dealt completely with sin and suffering. Because, look at 2 Peter 3 on the slide. It says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise. That's the promise of making all things new, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, 
not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, if God had only 20 years ago wrapped everything up, He had only 20 years ago brought Judgment Day and the new heavens and new earth. Unfortunately, Kerry wouldn't have been part of that. Is that right? 20 years ago? And many of us. Because we wouldn't have had the chance to come to Jesus, have our sins forgiven, and trust in Him. And yes, the suffering and evil unknown to us is still going on, as in the reasons unknown to us are still going on, but one of the reasons is He is giving you a chance. And if you're here today, and we're still living in a broken world where there's so much suffering, then one of the things that God wants you to know is that today's still your chance to have the sin, the guilt in your life dealt with so that when He does wrap everything up, you're not going to be part of the undealt with problems that are swept away. He's patient with you. So that's what God will do about suffering. The third and final question then. See, even if the first two questions make sense intellectually, God can seem a little bit cold. It's all big picture. And you're thinking, well, okay, I accept one, I accept two, but what about me? What about me as I'm suffering now? So the question is, how do I know God actually cares about me in my suffering? He's not just at a distance saying, look at answers to points one and two and just grin and bear it. How does God care about you and your suffering? Well, the first thing I want you to know is how important the idea and the truth behind Christmas is. We just celebrated Christmas a couple of months ago. But the idea of Christmas is that God became human. It's so revolutionary, and Christianity is the only one that has it in that way, that the God, that the God who is fully God became 100% human in Jesus And that's so important because of this. No other religion can claim quite as well as Christianity can that God cared enough about human beings to fully become a human being. And so that He could really step into our shoes and understand what it means to suffer. See, Islam and Judaism, both the other single God faiths, monotheistic faiths, The idea that God would become a man for both Islam and Judaism is blasphemy. But it's the glory of Christianity that God became a man that first Christmas, which meant that He became one of us. And in fact, He suffered more than any of us. I mean, you look at the life of Jesus, God in human flesh. He was born poor. He worked all of His life. He lost His dad when He was young. He was misunderstood and opposed. He was betrayed by his friend. He was falsely charged and accused. And he was tortured and crucified at an age younger than me and a lot of you here, at the age of 33 or so. God suffered. He knows what it's like to suffer as a man. Now, at this point, you might be saying, well, yeah, okay, that's maybe more suffering than some of us here. But there are others who suffered really greatly as well. I mean... Jesus was not the first person to be tortured and crucified in history. Others have been tortured and killed even more painfully. So how can you say that God suffered more than anyone? Well, remember, we're talking about God and not just a man here. 
We're talking about God crucified, yeah? Do you see, Jesus lost far more than we will ever lose in our suffering. Because the infinite God, who has infinite life, suffers infinitely when he loses his life. Do you see what I mean? We're talking about a different degree of being, of being God, and therefore a different degree of suffering, infinitely greater suffering. See, his death, Jesus' death was planned by God. It was, had a purpose. His whole life was so that he could go to the cross and not die just as an innocent man accused of something that he didn't do. He was a sin-bearing sacrifice. That's what the Bible's picture is. See, God the Son goes to the cross in the place of sinners, willingly. And so God, who has intimate relationship with His Father, God the Son Jesus, always intimately in relationship with His Father, at the moment of His death, that intimacy, the Bible says, is ruptured because He bore on His body all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame in our place. God cares enough about our suffering, not only to suffer, but to deal finally, decisively with the cause of suffering. And when he does that, he is abandoned spiritually. He faces hell spiritually so that we would never have to. See what I mean when the Bible says that God suffered more than any of us? To experience the depths of that suffering as a sin bearer, to have his intimacy with God the Father cut off, it's way more than any of us will ever suffer. Hebrews says this, another part of the Bible says that since the children, that's God's people, have flesh and blood, He, Jesus, shared in their humanity, so that by His death He might destroy Him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Right? He shares in our humanity so that He could destroy death. By dying. And so Peter Kreeft, who is a, a Christian um, apologist, says this, God's answer to the problem of suffering is that He came right down into it. Many Christians try to get God off the hook for suffering. God put Himself on the hook by putting Himself on the cross. See, the cross of Jesus is the point at which Christians can say confidently, the Bible says confidently, God not only knows our suffering, He's gone through the worst of suffering, and He's done something about the cause of suffering. Because Jesus not only dies, three days later, because of what He's done on the cross, He is risen again. And that, for Christians, is the guarantee that one day God is going to make everything new. What we read earlier in Revelation 21 in the Bible, remember that? New heavens, new earth. How do you know that's going to happen? How do you know God's promise to make all things new is going to happen? It was because in history, nearly 2,000 years ago, Jesus walked out of the tomb alive three days later. He already has experienced the new life that God has promised for all of creation in the future. He's the down payment. He's the first fruits. And so that's why so many Christians who suffer greatly now still can have joy and hope. God hasn't given them answers to why they're suffering now but they still look forward in hope because they know that Jesus is risen and that Jesus is living inside of them. So that's the third answer to the question. How do I know that God cares for me in my suffering? 
And so I want to finish off by just appealing to the people who might be here. And firstly, you might be here and you might be a skeptic. I haven't in 20 minutes been able to answer probably all of your questions about suffering. It's a conversation starter. And you have every right to maybe still be skeptical. Keep coming back, keep talking about the questions. But can I just maybe get you to think about being fair in your skepticism? That is, suffering and the question of evil is not just unique to Christianity. It's unique to every system of thought, every religion, every non-religion. Atheists have to deal with the question of suffering. So I want you to think about being skeptical, at least equally skeptical, to the alternative answers as well. If Christianity hasn't given you the answers you want... Are you equally putting under the microscope the other answers from other religions? And particularly from atheism. A famous atheist, Christopher Hitchens, when he was dying of cancer, he's since died. When he was dying of cancer, he says, I'm here as a product of the process of evolution, which doesn't make many exceptions, which rates life relatively cheaply. He's essentially saying, don't be sad for me that I've got cancer. This is just what happens as a product of evolution. Or as I quoted last week, Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist scientist, this is a fuller quote than the one I showed you last week. He says, In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. You see, if this is your closed universe view, then to even rail against the fact of suffering, to even ask the question of why suffering and evil is itself a nonsensical question. You don't get to ask that if you're Richard Dawkins. Now, that might be okay for you, but probably for many of us, and for the majority of atheists I know, that's not good enough either. So be skeptical of the alternatives. Be skeptical of the answers that other religions offer, which I won't have time to go into. So if you're a skeptic, keep asking the questions, but can I ask you, equally ask the alternatives. But you might be here, and you might be a seeker. And there's something that this suffering question or the other questions we'll be dealing with makes you want to find out more. And in fact, that is sort of one of the reasons why suffering God allows suffering in our lives. Suffering tends to be that wake-up call, that reminder that life is short, that you don't know what might happen tomorrow, that you can't wait until it's too late. Um, the author C.S. Lewis, the writer of the Narnia series, when his wife died, he went through the most intense suffering, and he wrote this as a reflection. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to wake a deaf world. You may be here, and this particular question of our series has caught your attention because of some suffering in your life. Can I just say, don't waste it? Because it may very well be God. Terrible as the things have happened to you, and again, remember, God allows it, right? But he hurts with you as you've hurt in it. But maybe one of the reasons why he's allowed it is to bring you here to ask these questions, to seek the answers, to have your sins forgiven as you come to Jesus so that you might hope for something better.
Let me conclude with Evie's story. Remember, I talked about my friends Dan and Teresa and their baby girl who only lived 77 days. They wrote a little bit more after the bit I stopped reading. It has been hard without Evie here, almost impossible at times. There have been days where everything feels like a new normal, and other days when we cry and fall apart completely, and everything is a struggle. In short, we're surviving. While in many ways we're glad to see the back of 2018, we approach 2019 knowing there's no guarantee that this year will be any better. Tomorrow is not promised to any of us. Whilst we know that God works for the good of those who love Him, the good is not defined by us, but by Him. Good on God's terms might mean pain and suffering, angst and grief that drives us in the direction of being more like Jesus. As we come to the end of the year, we look back and wish that things had been different. We long to have our daughter and baby sister back in our arms. However, we're seeking shelter from the battering we feel in God, our rock and refuge. We're clinging to the secure hope of the resurrection that Jesus has won for us. That remains our hope. We're surviving thanks to Him. Just a few days ago, we read this in a family devotional. Question, can you see any evidence that God is alive? Answer from Lamentations 3. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. With every morning, every month, every year, every decade, God is still a God of faithful, loving kindness. I mean, wow, huh? Someone who's just lost a baby girl. This is what they put on Evie's tombstone. Look what it says. Evelyn Talitha Paywan Lee, adored for 77 days, now compatible with eternal life. Remember, diagnosis, incompatible with life? Well, they have a different perspective. I love this line. God never says, oops. We grieve with hope because Jesus has risen. We love you and Jesus loves you. See, here's the thing, friends. Everyone without exception will suffer. If it hasn't happened yet, it will. And everyone here without exception will die. But those who have Jesus have something that even suffering and death can't destroy. And I hope you've seen from my friend's experience that that is certainly the case. And God is offering that same thing to you today. So will you? Will you come back next week and find out more as we look at the last question? What happens after death? Kind of a good lead on, isn't it? And will you especially have a think about fresh? By the way, you might have come to fresh last year or parts of it. Come back. Right. Every fresh may deal with some of the same questions, but the discussions will always go in a different direction because you're with a different group of people discussing it. Come back to fresh in this environment where you get to chat in small groups over tea, over coffee, over dessert. It's the best five weeks to really investigate. Come to fresh. Ask your questions. Seek some answers. And I really hope that everyone here would have the same kind of confidence that my friends Dan and Teresa have for when suffering does come your way. A hope that not even death can take away. I'm going to ask the band to come up.
I'm going to sing, and then I'll come back and explain how we can help you take 